The following is a message from our 10-week series, Hashtag Happy. For more, visit LinworthRoadChurch.com. Hey, I had, uh, I'm Chris, by the way, welcome again. I had uh, one announcement before, and then I'll pray and we'll get into this next edition of our Hashtag Happy series. Hey, one of our new educational initiatives this year is called Culture and Theology Night. And Culture and Theology Night will provide for us the opportunity to go deeper into pressing cultural or theological issues facing the church. And we have two such evenings planned for this ministry year. And the format will include one or two presentations and then followed by a Q&A. And our first experience of this will be on Friday night, October 21st at 7 p.m., now, there are many valuable and worthy topics that we need to and want to address. And our first topic will relate to the changing uh, landscape of marriage and its definition, as well as sexual ethics in our culture. My goodness, it just has been a very relevant issue just in the last few days. And how can we as followers of Jesus, in light of these changes, respond with grace and truth? So, we're going to also go more into depth about our own marriage policy and changes that we have made to to that, and uh, this will be an evening for the entire church to gather. High school, college, um, all of us. We hope many of you will plan on being there. So bring your Bibles and uh, be prepared to be equipped and to discuss and to be challenged challenged as well. So again, October 21st uh, at 7 o'clock. Okay, Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for every dear and precious person here this morning. Each one matters to you and is so valuable to you. And uh, I pray that this morning that whatever might hinder us from connecting to you and connecting to one another, that, Father, you would move that and that we would be able to enter into a deep experience here of the presence of Christ. Thank you, Father, that he is here. You are with us. In some mystical way, you are here with us. And, um, Father, let us invite you into this room fully. Indeed, you are here. Open up our hearts to hear your voice, sense your touch, receive your direction, receive inspiration, and become more of the people of God, more able, more willing, to bear your image in our world. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. So I have up here a very common ruler. You can see in my hand here, it's one of Linworth's rulers. I got it from here, not home. And we use a ruler, of course, for many things, but its primary purpose is to measure things. Now, I loved my ruler back in elementary school. I really did. And actually, this this one does not meet the grade of mine back in elementary school. I had one of the Cadillacs of rulers. It had black and red lines. It was wood, not plastic. Had the 16th inches all laid out. The quarter line was a little long, and then the the, the half-inch line was longer yet, and then you had the inch line. It was really fun to be able to measure things with such accuracy. You could figure out how many miles it was from Dallas to Portland, or you could 
draw a straight line with that ruler. Or you could even do some inane things like measure uh, the tail of your pet cat. But a ruler helps us figure out if we have enough, too much, or too little. We measure things all the time. We also measure people. Do they stack up? Are they too little or too big? Are they too old or too young? Too boisterous or too quiet? Too sanctimonious or too indifferent? How do you measure people? With what scale do you measure people? And more specifically, for us this morning in this room, how do you measure the behavior of other Christians? You know, our expectations rise when we talk about how to measure the behavior of other Christians. We expect more from Christian businesses. We expect more from Christian friends. We expect more from Christian artists. And indeed, we expect more from Christian leaders. Now, there's an upside to these expectations, for indeed, the power of Christ should make a difference in how we relate. But there's also a downside. All of these expectations open up a dangerous door. And that is the possibility of disappointment and even the charge of hypocrisy. If a man makes no claim to living ethically, we are less apt to blame him when he cheats on his taxes. If a woman makes no pretense about always doing the right thing, we will be more forgiving of her white lies. But what do you do when you see hypocrisy? What do you do when you are disappointed in the behavior of a Christian or a brother, Christian brother or sister? How do you measure that? You know, once you start thinking about this issue and you do a little moral inventory, we will be awakened to how much mental work we do in this regard. How much measuring we do on a day-in and day-out basis. Now, you might find yourself this morning at a fork in the road. You may find yourself tempted to give up on the hope of ever finding meaningful Christian community even giving up on the church. And that indeed is an easy road to take when encountering hypocrisy. But if you are there today, I would ask you to think hard. Because according to Jesus, your personal happiness is at stake. How do I say that? Well, open your Bibles to John's Gospel. And if you're just getting used to using the Bible, it's the... uh, In the New Testament, it's the fourth book. The verses will also be on the screen behind me, but we're going to dive into several verses. And as I do this, you might think that I'm going off road a little bit, off trail a little bit, but stay with me. We'll circle back to these questions and apply these scriptures. As you find that book, let me set up the scene for you. Jesus is about to be crucified, and he is leaving his friends with heartfelt instructions. The instructions found in chapters 13 through 17 are nothing short of breathtaking. Taken together, they answered the question that even at this late hour, the disciples could not recognize. The question is, how would they make it without him? 
How would they continue without his physical presence? Now, part of the answer to that question lay in the ongoing spiritual union with Jesus after his departure. A union made real through the Holy Spirit. Now, we are not talking here simply about the spirit of someone living on through our memory of them. No, Jesus promised to dwell inside of them through his spirit. He describes this reality in picture form in chapter 15. And this is the power of the Christian life. Jesus says, chapter 15, first several verses, that we are like branches. He likens us to branches, and he likens himself to the vine. And in the same way a branch receives nourishment to bear fruit from the vine, so we too bear fruit through spiritual nourishment from Jesus. The fruit has an internal effect, shaping our character, and an external effect as others taste the good fruit of our lives. Now, we cannot bear fruit on our own through study, through resolve, or through moral discipline. Jesus says we must abide. We must remain in the vine. To abide literally means to take up residence. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus takes up residence in our hearts. He makes his home within us. Quite a few years ago, August of 1999, the Martin family of six took up residence in a two-story modest house on Liberty Road. We filled every inch of it, every inch, even the crawl space, which now as uh, virtual empty nesters, my wife and I emptied last Saturday, um, hurting knees and other parts of our body, finding some rare and lost treasures too along the way, those that weren't um, destroyed by mold. The house, so to speak, the house, so to speak, yielded itself to our growing family And we took up residence there. Likewise, Jesus takes up residence in our hearts and wants to fill every square inch. If we get disconnected from Jesus, if he is uninvited or confined to a single room, the fruit will wither. But when he fills the house, we cannot help but bear fruit and we should expect to bear much fruit. So, Let's pick up this storyline in verse 9, okay? Here's what Jesus says. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Our motivation, our capacity to abide begins with trusting this first principle. He loves us. And this is a whole lot of love. Try to imagine how big the Father's love is for His perfect Son. Imagine the scope and depth of that love. Jesus has the same love for you. Even in your imperfections. And our calling is to remain in that love. How? Jesus 
How do we remain in that love? How do we abide in it? Look at verse 10. If you keep, keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. By keeping his commandments, by yielding to Jesus' rule and reign, by giving him authority to lead your life, this is how we remain in his love. Remember, he cannot give you a happiness that does not exist. Our happiness begins when we conform our lives to this created purpose. Now, Jesus, the Son of God, operated in the same way with his Father, leaving us an example to follow. As a man, Jesus exercised the same faith that we are called to exercise. But Jesus, why are you saying this? What is your end game? Why do you want us to obey you? Jesus tells us exactly why in the next verse. These things I have spoken to you, Here's why. That my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. Do you recall what I shared last week? That God is a happy God. And he loves to share his happiness with us. Why does Jesus want you to remain in his love and to obey his commands? So that his permanent and absolute joy might be in you. And that it would be full, abundant and overflowing. That's why. So confident of his love and obeying his commands has a lot to do with our personal happiness. But Jesus, there are so many commands. How can I possibly stay focused on them? Every day, I have so much to do. I've got work, I've got family, i got to maintain the car and the house. I have endless obligations. Indeed, there are about 50 commandments from Jesus. But there is one. There is one that rises in its significance. There is one that, if obeyed, will give us a sustaining power to keep the others in focus. What command from Jesus reaches that importance? It might surprise you. Because he doesn't list all 50 here. Look at what he says in verse 12. Here's my commandment. That you love one another. As I have loved you. Loving one another. When we love one another, we receive God's grace through one another. We receive God's power through one another. We can even receive his word and leadings through one another. With that grace comes a sustaining power to follow Jesus. And with that grace poured through one another comes a great boatload of happiness. Now, loving other Christians has never been easy. (laughs) And it's not easy today. The Apostle Paul acknowledged that remaining united with other Christians was a spiritual, a supernatural work. 
in benediction form, he prayed in Romans 15, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we see hypocrisy, when we experience disappointment with one another, what's our first reaction? Right? We, we want to run away. Oneness with other believers involves endurance and encouragement to stay. Now, we're tempted to think that somehow love should be easy. In our idealism, we believe that unity with other Christians should be matter of fact. But the reality proves far more difficult. Okay, love one another. That's a simple command. But Jesus, what does love mean? Is it something I feel? Is it an experience? Is it companionship? Is it simply being in the same room with people? What is love? We don't have to run to Webster's. We don't have to run to Dr. Phil. The answer is in the next verse. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. Love is serving the other. Love is placing the need, their need ahead of my own. It's laying down my life. It's very simple. Actually simple, but difficult to do. And there's a great spiritual dynamic that takes place when we love one another. Something very special unfolds in our relationship to Jesus. Jesus, when I love one another as you loved me, how will that change my relationship with you? Jesus, will it be like a military relationship where you give orders and I obey and the the mission is the the only thing that matters? Will it be a business relationship where I obey orders only to advance the bottom line? Will it be deferential like the ancient master to servant? We obey, but social barriers remain intact. What should we expect, Jesus, in our relationship with you when we love one another? Look at verse 14. This is so upside down. Look at what he says. You are my, you are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You see, in almost the reason this is so upside down, in almost every human relationship to be under someone's authority almost always means a lack of relational intimacy. Jesus presents an entirely new paradigm. A fear and love for someone in authority that does not produce resentment are becoming overly passive. A fear and love for someone that does not produce silence, but dialogue, conversation, back and forth. A fear and love for someone in authority that does not produce cordial distance, but love. And along with love, intimacy. And along with intimacy, a sense of closeness. God is a relational God. 
Jesus could have chosen a plethora of word pictures to describe this relationship when love remains in us and we obey him. He chose friendship. Power is released in your life when you obey Jesus and love is released in your life when you obey Jesus like this, when we love one another. Now, it's a profound section of Scripture, isn't it? It's beautiful. It's breathtaking. But let's circle back to our original question now. What do I do when I see hypocrisy? When I'm disappointed with the church and the people of the church? Jesus here gives a simple answer. Love one another. But again... Let's press that question. What do you mean by that? What does love look like? I mean, surely there is a time to confront and call out hypocrisy. Jesus did that. Love will have the courage to have tough, perhaps even awkward conversations. I have affirmed that. But this morning, what I want to highlight is more of our heart response. The way we measure one another and what we use to measure one another. And what does it take to not walk away when hypocrisy or weakness in the church just repels you? Okay? Let me give you four things. These are your application points. All right? Four things to answer this question. Here's number one. Love is setting realistic expectations. Let me explain what I mean by this. Francis Schaeffer wrote something really profound that I read many years ago and have never forgot. He said, if you expect nothing, you'll get nothing. All right? But if you, if you expect perfection, you will still get nothing. Hmm. Expecting perfection in competitive gymnastics or speed skating or field goal kicking... You miss a field goal in the NFL and your job is done. That's one thing. But expecting perfection in our friendships, or our leaders, or our churches, our Christian businesses is something else. If we lose sight of our common humanity and the weakness inside all of us, we over time will undo the very relationships we cherish so much. Stripping off love like wallpaper one section at a time with excessive criticism and nagging over superhuman or unrealistic expectations. You see, we got to have good theology here. And when you bump into hypocrisy or weakness before acting or walking away or condemning, remember that human sin impacts all of us. Now, We've just said that God's Spirit is in us. And when we come into relationship with Jesus, He gives us a new life, a new heart. Our old self, that nature that was bent towards sin, was crucified with Jesus. And we thus have the power to resist that self-first old nature. Yet, 
That being the case, we still have the members of this old nature remain alive within us. And they will remain that way until we are with Christ. Sometimes, is it not true, we choose to live and to act in that old sinful nature. We give it reign, so to speak, in our lives. As Christians, with this insight into human nature, we should have an exhilarating freedom to be honest about this. And this factor should come into play in the way that we measure one another. Friends, make sure that you are not seeking a utopia that will never exist on this side of eternity. Now, anger is a very legitimate emotion when confronting hypocrisy. Indeed, Jesus was angry, and I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't be angry. But rather than walking away from the church, let the experience of hypocrisy drive you first back to these gospel truths about ourselves and what Christ has done for us. So this is the first thing. Set Love is setting realistic expectations. Here's number two. Love is patient. Love is patient. In the famous love chapter, the first quality of love Paul describes is patience. It is easy for us who have been Christians a long time, isn't it, to forget our younger years and what we were like when we were just beginning. Just like a parent forgets what it was like to be a teenager. Friends, our poor memories are not justification to bring down the hammer on believers that are taking a little longer to put it together. It is important to realize that in a healthy church, or a healthy church will contain a wide spectrum of spiritual maturity. There are older, more mature believers. There are younger believers to whom growth uh, is not coming maybe quite as quickly. And there are those on their way to becoming Christians. You know, Paul did teach that each has been given a measure of faith. We have different capacities. We have different strengths. We are called to bear up with one another's weaknesses. Paul recognized this diversity within the church, and those of us that are spiritually mature should do the same. Look at what he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, with amazing wisdom. Paul says, and we urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle. Some versions say the idle and the disruptive. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. What is Paul urging here but for us to discern the heart before acting? There is a difference between those simply with a bad attitude and those that are weak. You know, we like to, here's what we do. We like to take our own spiritual growth chart and normalize that for everyone. But that is not how spiritual growth works. Everyone's spiritual growth journey is unique. We are in different places and we move at different paces. And the church is to be different than the marketplace. Those that are faint-hearted are the weak, 
are not pushed out the door. They are loved and treated with grace. And when we fail to discern this, we can drive people away from the church. Parents can misread their children and in both cases create deep resentment and bitterness. However, on the upside, a patient, God-centered environment allows people to grow under the sovereignty of God. Sometimes it's a life circumstance. It could be getting married or having a child. Sometimes it is a suffering that creates real growth. But God works out His plan in His timing. Here's the third thing. Love speaks positively about other Christians. I post on Facebook. I'm not ashamed of that. Actually, I don't post. I I never post. But I do like to. I enjoy catching up to your stories and reading your stories and seeing your pictures. Da-da-da. Now, I also see a lot of negative chatter about other Christians on Facebook. Can I tell you something? Facebook is a terribly weak forum for that. You are bound to hear a slanted view and not consider both sides. You are bound to misunderstand nuances and tones that are so critical for good communication. Nothing can ever replace the value of face-to-face communication. Please be careful. In my younger faith days, I spoke often and critically, often critically of other Christians. Now, some of this was innocent. I was trying to figure out what I believed. But there was a darker side as well. It was also, in my criticism, looking for a way to be different for difference' sake. What I mean is that by that, by criticizing others, it gave me a way to feel set apart, special, indeed, better than others. Painting yourself in bright blues and reds by painting others in dull browns and faded yellows always corrupts our soul. Always. It blinds us to our blind spots. <laughs> you can think about that saying for a while. It blinds us to our blind spots. When we establish our spirituality in relation to the deficiencies in others, that is dangerous stuff. That cycle of thinking was what made the Pharisees blind to what, and deaf to what Jesus was telling them. That type of thinking will produce bad fruit because it seeks self-justification at its root rather than justification in Christ. If we compare ourselves to anyone, friends, it should be to Jesus. He is the mark we are shooting for. And that is a comparison which will always yield an accurate view of ourselves. You know, when you think about other Christians, and when you speak about other Christians, you are applying a measure to them. And Jesus warns us to be cautious. Matthew 7 Verse 1 and 2. He said, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
Now, little caveat. This is not saying, by the way, that communicating clear, clear rights and wrongs from the Bible is judging or condemning. If you communicate there is a right and wrong in today's post-religious world, you will be accused of judging and condemning. I guarantee you that. Jesus said we should expose the darkness. So that's not what he's suggesting here. He's describing something different. What he describes here is when we assume the position of God and operate from an assumed position of moral superiority. And when we do that, friends, we apply a certain scale, a certain measure, and with it, we carry a more condemning attitude in excess to the judgment of God. Let me say that as I've written it, because it's clear. <laughs> and when we do that, we apply a certain scale, a certain measure, and it will carry with it a condemning attitude in excess to even the judgment of God. And Jesus is saying that the scale you use will be measured back to you. Not only in a future judgment before God, but it will reverberate back in this life as well. How so in this life? Because what you will do is you will unconsciously apply the same measure and the same scale to yourself. And you will remove yourself from drinking deep of God's grace. Rather than looking to criticize and being eager to criticize other Christians, we should be looking for opportunities to speak well of other Christians and leaders and groups as a show of unity and solidarity. As a recognition that God's kingdom is bigger than our church and our denomination as a rejection of competition and an affirmation that we are secure in Christ. We're not trusting in how well our churches or our ministries. We're not grading on how well our churches or ministries perform. And parents, again, let me give you a caution here as well. Be careful about how you speak of other Christians around your children. Parents who have a dynamic spiritual vision for their kids can be very quick to point out the shortcomings of other Christians who do not meet the mark. Over the years, repeated criticism of unbelievers can unintentionally communicate to your children that to be loved, to be accepted, to avoid the criticism, they must perform at a spiritually high level. Gossip, negative talk, downgrading others, in any context, will make the others around you feel insecure, wondering when you'll turn on them and wondering what they must do to avoid your storm of criticism. Friends, on the positive side of things, on the other side of things, speaking in a way that honors others, that sees their best, that applauds their strengths, it inspires everyone around you when you speak that way. When you measure that way. Number four. Last one. Love does not attack the mirror. What does that mean? Sometimes the reason we respond with condemnation 
to others is because we hate the same sin in our own lives. It is as if that individual is holding up a mirror to us and shows us our weakness and we despise it in ourselves because we do, we find it easier to despise them for it. If I'm repelled by Jack's laziness or TV watching, maybe it's because I'm not comfortable with my own passiveness. If I condemn Sharon's shopping habits, maybe I'm not happy with my own measure of generosity. If I can't stand Kelly's pride, maybe I am horrified by my own. This is how David Murray said it so, so well. Don't attack, don't attack the mirror. Use it to see what is wrong in my own life. You see, confronting hypocrisy could be a launching pad for a tremendous spiritual awakening in yourself. Telling the truth to yourself and applying the gospel to yourself. Those four things. Those four things are the key to love as we respond to weakness and hypocrisy in one another within the local church. So what are the keys to a happy church? We call this message a happy church. Here's the one key. Measure with the grace that you've been given. When hypocrisy or weakness in the church repels you, what should you do? Jesus gives a simple answer. Love one another. What measure then should guide our heart and attitude and help us discern our actions and heart responses? It's very simple. What should the measure be? The measure of how he deals with you in your weakness and hypocrisy. There's your measure. God's grace to us is given in undeserving amounts to us. God's kindness to us forgives the immense debt that we owe him. He forgives us through the actions of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Get out a measuring scale that looks the same with your brothers and sisters. That's the scale. The same way he measures you. It's the same way we measure one another. This is how we stay together. This is how we persevere in love. Perfectionism, impatience, speaking negatively of others, attacking the mirror that exposes us. All of these have an appearance of super spirituality. But in the end, they isolate us. They separate us. And they prevent us from real, authentic, genuine, meaningful Christian community. They close off a tremendous source of grace and power, and thus they close off a tremendous source of happiness. Nick, you guys can come on up. As those guys come forward, let me just finish with this, these questions and words as a challenge to all of us. Linworth, can you commit to Christ's church? Can you commit to Christian Community? Okay, you've seen them now, right? You've seen them all come up. Okay. Can you commit to not simple-mindedness, but single-mindedness in your love for other believers? 
not based on doctrinal unity completely, but based on a common love for each other. Could you imagine then entering into a friendship with Christ? A friendship with Christ. For your interests and your passions are thus the same. Like friends, you care about the same things. And your heart beats to the same rhythm as his. How cool is that? How great would that life be? And it can be yours. It can be yours. Just don't say no to the one command that will keep you in the race. Love one another. Father, thank you for the amazing simplicity of your words to us. And we confess to you, Father, that we have failed them and we cannot live up to them. But we thank you that Jesus Christ, in his years here, entirely fulfilled all of what you dreamed that we could be so that he could exchange his life for ours and pay the sin debt that we owe. We celebrate that this morning in song. We celebrate it through our offering. We celebrate it through our common community here together and our common fellowship. Through his atoning sacrifice, we come and we pray. And we say we love you, Lord. We love you. Amen. Amen.